Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 16 in the book of John entitled, I am the light of the world, where we discuss John 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 30. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see as we look at this passage today in the book of John? Well, as we continue to move through John, we're going to see more and more of the beautiful evidence of the deity of Christ and the nature of salvation. That's what John's written. Not just that we would know that Christ is the Son of God uh, and that by believing we would have life in His name, but what that life is like and what it entails. And we're going to see one of those beautiful I am statements today where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so we're going to see the beauty of what that means, the fact that we who follow Him uh, do not walk in darkness, that we have a sense of direction um, because of Jesus as the light of the world. So I'm excited to talk about all that with you. Definitely. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read John 7:53 through 8:30. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world 
what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Andy, right away we come face to face with this account that shows the mercy of Jesus, the call to discipleship and sanctification, and the exposing of self-righteousness. Given the fact that this is not in the earliest manuscripts, why do you think early Christians loved this account and wanted to preserve it? Well, one of the more famous statements that Jesus made, uh, and we, we were talking about this earlier, is, uh, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. It's a very well-known statement, but uh, the more you get into Bible study and you start to learn more and more about how the Bible was put together and, and aspects, you learn about something called manuscripts. And you come to find out that the Bibles that we read are, are copies and translations from original manuscripts. The Bible in its original languages was written in three languages, uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and in the Old Testament and then Greek in the New Testament. So we can't read any of those things and those things were translated uh, for us. And they're translated from something called manuscripts. And manuscripts are handwritten copies predating, of course, uh, the printing press, which came in in the 15th century. Um, with a movable type, um, and so before that, everything was hand copied, and so there became a science of putting together uh, the, the the text of the scripture based on comparing manuscripts, and the manuscripts, uh, you know, agreed for the most part, but there were some different readings, and so you'd have to decide which one was better. And the general rules were: the older manuscript was given, you know, a little more weight; the older it was. Uh, its geographical location, where it was found, the closer it was to Palestine, the more weight it was given. And they also would say the more difficult reading, if the reading was uh, you know, a little awkward or strange, uh, no scribe who was copying it 100 years later or 300 years later would interject a difficulty. They would try to smooth it out or remove it. So those were the theories. And also another thing that's happened as, is, as time has gone on, the science of archaeology has improved. And therefore, we have actually, to some degree, gone back in time. We find older and older manuscripts on some monastery in Sinai or some other place, uh, somewhere in Egypt. And we find older and older manuscripts. And they often agree with what we already had, but sometimes they're different. And so you have to harmonize it. Well, as it turns out, the King James Version of the Bible was put together on manuscripts that are a little newer. They're not as old as some of the ones we have since that time found. And there's this unity kind of text, the majority text that was ba that the uh, King James was based on. And that majority text does not include this story, hmm. um, um, or does include it, but the older manuscripts do not. And so the majority text had it, it was included in the King James, but the older manuscripts did not have it. So now we have a problem. Um, is this story valid or not? And so that's the story of manuscripts. I must say in preaching, I don't bring up manuscripts hardly ever from the pulpit. Hmm. I basically just don't trouble the church with it. It's my problem. I have to work it out. But there are different manuscripts, uh, manuscript issues on almost every passage I preach on. You just have to make decisions on it. So Now the question is, what about this one? Is this valid or not? Well, how can we know? We don't know for sure. Um, let's say we didn't know, and we just put, put this, this passage on trial. What we try to see is, um, 
does it sound like Jesus? Does he say anything odd in it? Is there anything that doesn't ring true? Is there anything difficult in it? Um, and anything questionable, anything that doesn't harmonize. And there's nothing that overtly uh, is hard to harmonize. I think we see Jesus presented here. The Jesus that's presented here is the Jesus we see in all the other gospel accounts. He tends to be merciful to sinners. Mm. He's especially merciful to women. Yeah. And this woman was caught in adultery and she's caught right in the act and they're ready to stone her. And the law of Moses did, in fact, command um, execution for adultery. Um, and they bring her to Jesus. Now, it's strange that they brought her to Jesus. Who's he? He's not in any official position. He's a carpenter. Uh, now, he has authority because he's the son of God, and he's, and he's, uh, but they didn't believe that. They're actually trying to expose him because they knew he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, here's yet another case. He's just going to be basically a liberal, a theological liberal. He's going to just let her go. Yeah. And so they're bringing the tester, and they're just using her like she's a piece of property. Um, it's really very tragic. Even stranger is the fact that they don't bring the man. So he, he gets off scot-free. Maybe he's even one of them. I have no idea. I don't know anything about the man. But if she's caught right in the act, how come they didn't get the guy? Both of them deserve to be stoned, not just the woman. And then it's, it's interesting what happens, how Jesus kind of draws in the dirt. and we don't, we don't have any idea what he wrote. And he doesn't say anything. And then they kind of press in on him for a decision. And then he makes this very famous statement. Let him who is without sin among you throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing on the ground. And then the text says that one by one, they drop their stones beginning with the oldest one. Ones, and then they stop. So it's quite a story. It's very captivating. Mm -hmm. And then it ends very interestingly. He said, woman, is there no one left to condemn you? She said, no one. And he said, then neither do I condemn you. So let's say this actually is inspired scripture, saying I could stone you because I am without sin, yeah. but I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to kill you. Go and sin no more. He says, it's very well uh, known pastor. Now, how can we know whether it's true or not? I don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> the biggest problem in it for me is that I don't think Jesus would have said in the Old Testament that you had to be sinless to execute a sinner. There were numbers of sinners that were executed during the time of Moses, let's say, the blasphemer mm -hmm. that, that was heard blaspheming. He was executed. He didn't require that, that only sinless people carry out the execution. So it's a bit problematic for me. But in the end, we do see the essential mercy of God in Christ. And that's important. Mercy triumphs over judgment, as James says. And so in the end, all of us hope to be treated like this, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And to me, that's beautiful. And then the command that we should go and sin no more. Just because we've been forgiven, we need to walk in newness of life and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So that's how I read the story. That's helpful as we think about this particular story. As we think about Scripture as a whole and the trustworthiness of Scripture, are there other instances of things like this, or should this cause any concern in the reader's mind to the trustworthiness of Absolutely Scripture overall? Absolutely not. You know, all old documents, all of the old old um, writings, like any of the Aristotle, Plato, all of these, Homer, uh, Julius Caesar, they're all written on old manuscripts and nobody's debating about it. And as a matter of fact, the New Testament has far more manuscript evidence than any other book. God has given us really an embarrassment of riches. Five, six thousand handwritten copies of aspects or portions of the Old Testament. Entire bound editions of the New Testament four centuries after Jesus. It was a very short time for an ancient document. So we're doing, we're doing fine. I, I would say this, on manuscripts there's not a single doctrine in the Christian life that's hanging in the balance on a manuscript question. Mm. Um, so that's really encouraging. That's yeah, so helpful. 
you know, as we move on to verses 12 through 30, I wonder how should we understand Jesus' statement that he is the light of the world? And how can we reconcile this with Matthew 5, 14? You mentioned this earlier where Jesus tells his disciples that they are the light of the world. Marvelous. For me, when Jesus makes this strong claim, what an incredible, Jesus' claims are claims to deity. There's no doubt about it. I am the light of the world. And it's one of those seven I am statements. We can talk more about that in a moment. But it's just it's just a, a, an assertion of the light. He doesn't just preach the light or point to the light or delight in the light or walk in the light. He is the light of the world. Now, light makes everything visible, Paul tells us in Ephesians. It, it, it's, it's essentially tied to truth, the ability to perceive the universe as it really is. You know, if your eyes are, are bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Mm-hmm. I actually link this also with the prophecy made in Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Wow. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. And so that darkness, which is also mentioned at the end of Isaiah 8 in terms of necromancers and witches and, and mediums and spiritists mumbling in darkness over the land, it's a spiritual darkness. It's evil, wickedness comes over our minds and we don't see the truth. When Jesus comes, he cuts through all of that and he is the light of the world. Now, we are not ultimately the light of the world, but I think it's more like the difference between the sun and the moon. We reflect a light that is not our own. Hmm. And when it's full moon, a harvest moon, something like a beautiful moon, the, the, the light, the, the moon is not giving off any light. It's reflecting sunlight to us. And so in the same way, we reflect the light of Jesus. And now that he's ascended and he's up in heaven, we are the light of the world as we reflect Jesus. That's how I understand it. Andy, you just mentioned this, uh, but this is the second of seven I am statements in the book of John. Mm. What do these statements tell us about Christ? Mm. And what do they teach us about salvation? Well, the seven I am statements, and we'll, we'll go through each of them uh, in, in due time, but we've already seen one of them. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, the bread of life. You know, we're going to see Jesus as the, uh, uh, the door for the sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the, the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the most famous of all the I am statements. But John definitely has organized his gospel around this. I am. Mm. And I think it really does point, and very much at the end of this chapter, we're not going to get to it today, but uh, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. This is an overt claim to deity. But not only that, um, who he is for us as God. So the different names of God in the Old Testament, uh, you know, I am uh, the Lord who heals you. He's the Lord, the healer. He is the God who sees me. You know, Hagar said that. He is the, I am the God who sees you. He's the God who hears. You know, that's why Hannah called um, her son Samuel, the God who hears me. So God's different functions. So in this case, he is the, the I am. He is God, the light of the world. He is the one that enables us to walk in the light of truth. Hmm. After Jesus claims to be the light of the world, the Pharisees challenge Jesus, stating that he's bearing testimony about himself, thereby making his testimony untrue. In verses 14 through 18, Jesus responds by making some incredible statements Mm -hmm. about both his testimony and his relationship with the Father. In what ways has the Father testified Mm -hmm. to Jesus? That's a great question. I'll answer that and then go back to the other issues that you mentioned as well. First of all, the Father is testified by speaking with the voice of God, similar Mm -hmm. to him speaking on Mount Sinai, saying the Ten Commandments. And then from then on, God uh, spoke through the prophets, through Moses and the prophets. But the actual voice of the living God said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
And so there it is. Um, that's how he testified. And he would do it again at the um, Mount of Transfiguration. And so that's how he did it. Now, the issue of the validity of Jesus' testimony, first of all, for us as Christians, we read this, we know exactly what he's talking about. Even if I were to testify about myself, my testimony would be true because I'm God. And everything I say is true. Mm-hmm. I have a commitment to the truth that you can't even come close to touching. I mean, your commitment to the truth is like a match. Mine is like the raging sun. I am absolutely committed to the truth. It is impossible for me to lie. So even if I do testify about myself, my testimony is true because I am God. I am the Son of God. But also he, he is arranged in his heart to do only the will of Almighty God. So he's not arrogant. He's not boasting. He's not prideful. He is there to serve the Father. And so the Father and the Son testify that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's interesting, he's going to arrange 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection, and he's going to send them out, and they're not going to believe them either. So those will be multiple witnesses. And when the Holy Spirit comes on us, we'll be witnesses. And they gave, and they tried to kill those witnesses. So, mm. you know, they were not in any way disposed to believe Jesus' testimony. Yeah. Well, what's the relationship between knowing Jesus and knowing the Father? It's mentioned mm. uh, in the text. And how should this affect our approach to knowing God? If you know me, you know my Father. He's going to say later in the same gospel, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So it's, it's the intense, the deep mystery of the Trinity. Jesus is not the Father, but he and the Father are one. And it's impossible to know the Father apart from the Son. So modern-day Judaism that rejects Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah cannot really know God. You can't skip the second person of the Trinity and go right for the first person of the Trinity. The Father won't permit it. You must embrace the Son in order to know Him, the Father. And so to know Jesus is to know the Father. And I, I've thought about that, and we'll get to it you know, many, many weeks from now when we do uh, the statement he makes, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Um, but he says, if you know me, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. You know, when, when we look at Jesus, we're seeing the radiance of God's glory. Hmm. We're seeing effectively a sunbeam that's come across 93 million miles of outer space and hit our retina. And that is our experience of the sun, the S-U-N. Now, that's how we see that bright, fiery thing, the star up there in the sky, by the sunbeam. That hits our, our retina, the light. Yeah. Jesus is the, the radiance of God's glory. To see him is, in that sense, to see the Father. To know him is to know the Father. Wow. Verses 21 through 30 close out this passage, and there's so much here that we could dig into, uh, but it closes out this passage with a vision of the tragic consequences of yeah. dying in sin without Christ. Mm-hmm. What does this passage teach us about the exclusivity of Christ and the yeah. eternal consequences for those who die in their sin. Absolutely vital. Um, let's go back to the I am statement. We need to, we need to um, assert this. First of all, let me talk about you will die in your sins. Mm-hmm. That is a terrifying statement. To die in your sin, according to this, is to go to hell. There is no hope. And Jesus is saying, you will be condemned eternally. You will be tied hand and foot and thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will die in your sins. And I'm telling you, you will die in your sins. It's a terrifying statement made by the judge of all the earth. And it's not made lightly. And the essence of it comes down to their denial of who he is. Mm -hmm. And let's go to the issue of the I am. They deny that he is God. They deny his deity and his claim to be deity. And he's going to make it overtly 
at the end of this chapter. Before Abraham was born, I am. And they pick up stones. Well, behind that is the statement of God to Moses. When Moses is sent at the beginning of the Jewish nation, he is sent to represent God. And he says, what shall I say is your name? What shall I, who sent me uh, to, to you? And tell them I am. So Yahweh, the, uh, the tetragrammaton, and the four letters, the, the Lord, all in caps in the Old Testament, that's all related to I am. He's the I am. Jesus is claiming to be God. There's no doubt about it. But if you look at John 8, 24, this is one of the most important verses I use for witnessing to Je uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Hmm. They deny that Jesus is Yahweh. They deny he is Jehovah God. They deny he's the creator. But this chapter is an overt claim to be the I am. And Jesus says effectively through John 8, 24, this one verse, John 8, 24, that if they continue to reject the deity of Christ, they will go to hell. They will go to hell. They will die in their sins. So look at the verse from that point. And a lot of times extra words are put in there that are not in the Greek. Let me read it uh, you know, more or less mechanically from the Greek. I told you that you would die in your sins, and if you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. So all the other stuff is just added. So what do you, you have the ESV there? Mm -hmm. What does it say? I am? I am he. He. So they add the word he, but it's not in the Greek. Um, the NIV adds even more. I am the one I claim to be. That's not at all in the Greek. It's just I am. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, what does that mean? So, Wes, what would that mean to you? If you you will die in your sin if you do not believe that I am. Uh, again, this linking to his deity, if we reject that, then there is no hope for us. That yeah. apart from believing that Christ is who he's claiming to be and that he is God. Yeah. If we don't believe that, then there's no hope. Yeah, and so I think of that when I witness to Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not mm -hmm. okay, because they are so close to evangelical Christianity at many levels, and yet so far away. If they get the person of Jesus wrong, they will die in their sins. Mm. Well, Andy, thanks for taking a look at this passage with us. Uh, what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage just as we wrap up this time? Well, uh, at the end of this section, you know, he says, I always do what pleases him. And I, I think about that. It's like I, I've moved in my life from never doing what pleases him as an unregenerate person mm -hmm. to sometimes doing what pleases him, which all of us Christians would say. I think I sometimes please him. Yeah. Um, I just want to follow Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect man. And for him to be able to say, I always do what pleases my Father. I want to walk in. That's what it means when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I want to walk in that light to always please God. May that be true of all of us that we would always do what pleases the Father. Well, this has been episode 16 in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode 17 entitled, Before Abraham Was, I Am, where we'll discuss John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.